This week on Texas Scorecard Radio, we'll get an update on the governor's newest order related to the coronavirus and the reaction we're seeing to it up in North Texas. For our interview, we talked to Jeremy Newman of Texas Homeschool Coalition about a critical parental rights case at the Texas Supreme Court. You won't believe what the courts have ruled related to parental rights so far. And we'll finish up with a commentary from Robert Montoya on one program legislators should consider cutting Hollywood film subsidies. Welcome back to another week of Texas Scorecard Radio. I'm your host, Tony McDonald. You can find us, as always, on the web at www.texasscorecard.com. Follow me on social media at Tweet Tony Mac. Um, If you're catching the show on the radio, uh, just know we also push this out as a podcast uh, so you can ensure you never miss an episode of Texas Scorecard Radio uh, by subscribing to the Texas Scorecard Radio podcast available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. If there's a place you get podcasts, it's probably uh, there somewhere. I wanted to get started with this week's uh, news and go to Brandon Walton's managing editor for Texas Scorecard. Uh, Obviously, it's week in, week out, new developments every week uh, related to the state's response to the Chinese coronavirus and the governor uh, finally out with some changes uh, to the policy that has been in place for the last month. Uh, tell us about those changes, uh, what we're going to be seeing over the uh, coming weeks. You know, over the last few weeks, we've seen grassroots folks, but we've seen, you know, everyday Texans, business owners saying, you know, uh, please, Governor, please give us a plan. Please outline uh, what the end of this uh, shutdown is going to look like. And finally, it looks like uh, the governor is listening. Uh, this week, he held a press conference in which he outlined the plan to reopen Texas. Now, Uh, It's not all opening up at once. Uh, You know, this isn't going to be a flip a switch. Everything goes back to normal situation. Uh, But it is very, very interesting to see this phased approach that the Governor Abbott uh, has saying that the state is going to take uh, over the next few weeks. Yeah. So the initial orders, uh, the the kind of big headline to me was that Mm -hmm. the existing order that had been in place through the end of April scheduled to expire at the end of the month. Uh, and then uh, there's a new kind of operation going into place for some businesses where it's all kind of based on occupancy. Yeah, I mean, that original stay-at-home order uh, expire, and then opening up and allowing some businesses, these are restaurants, movie theaters, retail stores, allowing them to reopen, uh, but only at 25% occupancy. And of course, they need to follow Uh, certain guidelines related to hygiene, cleanliness, sanitizing, uh, that sort of thing. But that's going to be the phase one of this approach. So you're not going to have places opening up completely. In fact, we've seen some places who have said, look, at at 25% occupancy, uh, I I can't make money. I'm going to lose money if I reopen my restaurant because I need more than 25% of my staff to even serve that. Uh, So those folks are looking forward to the second phase of this plan uh, where that number is going to be increased up to 50%. Yeah, that, that, that's expected somewhere at the middle of the month. Uh, one set of businesses that folks are a little upset about uh, not being included uh, in the order, specifically uh, bars are not included, uh, but more importantly, uh, barbershops, salons, uh, those kinds of businesses. Right. Bars, gyms, salons, those are people that are going to uh, have to wait for the second phase of this approach. Now, as far as the timeline on that, uh, Governor Abbott not uh, wanting to commit to any date uh, but he did say mid-May and throughout the date, May 18th, for 
um, a likely date for that, depending on what the trajectory of the spread of the virus is. Yeah. Now, one interesting uh, element here, there'd been a lot of protest pushback, uh, particularly down in Harris County on these local mm-hmm. ordinances are requiring folks to wear masks uh, and, you know, po- local police saying, hey, we're not going to enforce this. We're not going to criminalize, you know, the lack of a mask. Uh, the governor's order kind of superseding, preempting uh, those or- ordinances. Yes, and the governor made it very, very clear uh, as he held his press conference on the same day that Harris County mask ordinance went into effect, uh, where citizens there were facing, you know, a thousand dollar fine if they dared leave their house without wearing a mask. Uh, Governor coming in and saying, look, uh, no one can implement a fine for wearing a mask. We're not going to mandate this. And my order supersedes that. you had him saying, you know, he thinks it's a good idea that folks wear masks, but but it's not going to be mandated. And so that's some good news for folks who were facing that. All right. Well, new order in place, uh, uh, new elements, something to keep an eye on, and we'll keep an eye on uh, future developments. Absolutely. Speaking of these new policies, there has been a lot of pushback from citizens who are tired of being uh, stuffed away in their homes. And for that, let's go talk to Aaron Anderson up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Aaron, uh, you and your colleague Robert Montoya have been out and about uh, talking to groups of people protesting and pushing back against state and local orders uh, related to the coronavirus. Tell us about it. Well, that's right, Tony. Uh, All around the state, there has uh, grown up a movement called Open Texas to reopen the state's economy and especially the small businesses that have been most hurt uh, by these coronavirus closures. Um, And it's not that they don't want to uh, reopen business safely and cautiously, but uh, the the economic impact has really been devastating. We're now over 1.9 million new unemployment claims filed uh, just in the wake of this uh, coronavirus and, yeah. and people are ready to get back to work safely. Yeah. So you, uh, you and Robert went out to a couple of these uh, protests, I guess, over the last weekend. Tell us about that. That's right. Uh, I was out at a, a rally, not a protest, a rally uh, in support of the small businesses and of uh, the reopen movement uh, in Frisco, where they had about 600 people The organizer said theirs was the largest, um, but certainly not the only one going on around the state. And the the message from business owners, uh, from individuals, from doctors even, was that it's time to to get businesses reopened because our small businesses are the kind of the backbone of the Texas economy. And then on Tuesday, Robert Montoya was out at another rally downtown in Dallas on Tuesday uh, with the same message. Yeah. Now, uh, that Frisco rally getting a lot of attention, uh, business owner there, a lady named Shelly Luther, uh, standing up and uh, protesting against an order that she should be forced to close her business. That's right. Robert has been covering uh, Shelly Luther's Salon a la Mode. goings on. She has been reopening her business uh, despite these these shutdown orders. She's been doing it very safely with masking and distancing and so forth. She was uh, hit by um, the Dallas County, Clay Jenkins, with a cease and desist order uh, last Friday. And at that Saturday rally in Frisco, she spoke to the crowd and uh, ripped that uh, piece of paper in half. Yeah, very defiantly saying, hey, I have a constitutional right to conduct my business and, and these things being done by the local governments are, are illegal. 
Uh, very interesting uh, what's going on up there and really great coverage uh, from you and Robert uh, of these folks who are, uh, you know, finally saying we've had enough and uh, want to proceed and, and take care of our own health, and our own livelihoods. Uh, very interesting stuff. Thanks for your reporting on it. Thanks, Tony. Texas Scorecard Radio is a project of Empower Texans. At texasscorecard.com or empowertexans.com, you can find more news and daily updates from all around the Lone Star State. You can also find updates from Empower Texans and Texas Scorecard on Facebook and Twitter and follow Empower Texans on Instagram. Texas Scorecard's News Digest goes out weekly via email with occasional updates throughout the week. Subscribe online and find more information at empowertexans.com. Someone's always keeping score. We think it ought to be the taxpayers. Well, just this last week, the Texas Supreme Court took up a very important case uh, dealing with parental rights. And uh, to comment on that, I wanted to go talk to our friends uh, over at Texas Homeschool Coalition, the leading organization in the state of Texas uh, for defending parental rights. I'm joined by uh, Jeremy Newman. Thanks for uh, being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So tell us about this case that uh, was up on oral argument at the Texas Supreme Court. And uh, it's, you know, a lot of cases, very legally wonky kind of stuff. This is not that. This is actually uh, a big principles kind of case uh, dealing with fundamental issues of parental rights in the state of Texas, something that every parent in the state really ought to be paying at least a little bit of attention to. Uh, Tell us about this case. Tell us the story of what's going on. Yeah, so so the the legal name of the case is uh, CJC. If, for anyone who wants to, you know, Google around for that and, and read more about it. But the basic story is that back in 2016, the mother and father of this five year old little girl, Anne, they had separated and they agreed to have basically 50 50 custody of Anne. So she spent about half her time living with mother, half her time living with father, and then um, the mother uh, started dating another man. And about uh, during that relationship, she moved in with that man and then she died in a car accident. And so she had, she lived, Anne's mother lived with this man for about an 11 month period or so. And so during the mother's periods of possession, Anne also lived with her. So the, it kind of worked out that Anne ended up cohabitating with her mother's boyfriend for about five or six months across that period. And this is proceeding, you know, as the uh, the mother is killed in this car wreck, the six months preceding that she's living half of the time with the mother and then with obviously the uh, the live-in boyfriend, fiancé. I think he was a fiancé. I've tried to keep track of this. Yeah, yeah. So they, they got engaged uh, shortly before the mother died, just a few months before the mother died. And yes, it, it was a little less than six months that Anne ended up spending with him during the time when her mother lived there. All right. So, so obviously with the death of the mother, that creates custody issues uh, for this child. Well, yeah, in a sense. So what basically happened was she went back to live with her father full time and she was normally spending about half of her time with her father during this period. And then when the mother died, she spent all of her time with her father because now he's the sole living custodian. Um, the, the weird part that happened is that shortly after the mother died, the maternal grandparents and this fiance who spent less than six months with Anne and has no relation to her, they both filed for custody of Anne. 
And the really notable thing here is nobody has accused the father of doing anything wrong. In fact, everyone acknowledges openly and the courts have found on the record that the father is an entirely fit parent. He raises his daughter well. He's done nothing wrong. Even so, the maternal grandparents and the fiance requested custody of Anne from the father. And the, the really strange part of the case is the trial court kicked the grandparents out of the suit and said, hey, you're not able to prove that the father is an unfit parent. And because he's a fit parent who raises his daughter well, we're not going to take custody from him and give it to you. So they kicked the grandparents out of the case. But then at the same time, the court granted custody to the fiance who has no relation to the daughter and has spent less than six months with her. And whereas the grandparents have a blood relation and actually were involved in raising her up to this point. So this, now, is, this, this is really bizarre, right? So you would think, I mean, as a layman and I'm not a fan, I'm an attorney, but not a family law attorney, you know, as a layman, you come to this and you would think, okay, the parents, you know, children should be in the care of, of their parents. Right. So that makes sense. And then, okay, if a parent is unfit, sometimes family members show up and, and try to get custody, and that makes sense. But then, you know, okay, so the grandparents don't have standing to come in, but the live-in boyfriend fiancé somehow does? Why, what is the rationale for that? Yeah, exactly. So this is the strangest part of the case, for sure. And basically, the, the argument here that the fiancé is making is he said, hey, the, the grandparents and I each filed for custody under two different laws. And the, the law that the grandparents filed under requires that they prove the father is unfit before they can get custody. The one I filed under as the fiance does not require that. Therefore, I don't have to prove you unfit. I get to come into court on equal footing with the actual father. And the father's response to that is um, no, because constitutionally, you're required to prove that I'm an unfit parent before you get custody of my daughter. And this is kind of the crux of the issue here is that the, the question that we're basically asking the court in this case, or the father's asking the court and the fiance is asking the court is, do parents have a constitutional fundamental right to raise their children? The fiance is arguing being the biological parent of a child gives you no greater right than I have as an unrelated man. And the father is arguing hey, going back 100 years, the U.S. Supreme Court has acknowledged that parents have a fundamental right to raise their child. In fact, the court describes it as the oldest fundamental right they've ever recognized. And now the Texas Supreme Court is being asked to decide, do they actually have this right? And, and you'd think it would be a straightforward question, but the trial court and the Fort Worth Court of Appeals both got it wrong. They both ruled in favor of the fiance and agreed with his argument that an unrelated man can come in and take custody of a child from a biological father who everyone agrees is a fit parent. Yeah. See, and, and this is, you know, I think it was just recently in the news of some acad epic academic at, uh, I believe Harvard who was saying, Oh, well, you know, parental rights exist uh, because the state grants parental rights. There's no inherent right as a parent to your children. And it almost seems like that's what's being explored here is that extreme position that, okay, well, there's a statute that deals with parental rights and, and uh, custody disputes. And one part of the statute has the standard that you have to have an unfit parent to intervene and another part of the statute doesn't. And so 
It depends on what just what your cause of action is. There is no principle, right, to the whole thing. And that just strikes me as, as really, truly extreme. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and the, the law professor you're talking about, he basically argues, in fact, he explicitly argues, parents don't have any rights to their children. Anything that they have, any rights they have are granted by the state and the state can take them away. And so basically saying children belong to the state, not to the parents. And I really think that is a very similar principle to what we're talking about here. And, and here's the, the real issue in a practical sense that if the fiance wins on this argument, what that means is that a non-parent or a non-relative, someone who has no relationship to the child whatsoever, can sue for custody of a child and actually win custody of that child from an entirely fit parent. And you know, most people, when they hear about cases like this, they think, oh, you know, that person probably did something to get into this situation, and you know, I wouldn't do something to get into that situation. And they kind of use that to think, to distinguish and think, this wouldn't happen to me because I wouldn't do something to get myself into that situation. But the whole issue here is nobody has accused the father of doing anything wrong. They're taking custody of his daughter after acknowledging openly that he has not done anything wrong. Yeah, so very, very significant. So tell us, so the oral argument took place uh, this last week uh, before the Texas Supreme Court, very unusual circumstances with online, you know, we're doing all these things uh, over Zoom and, and uh, uh, online meetings and that kind of thing. Um, but nonetheless, the court's still holding these arguments. Um, tell us how the court reacted. And I'll be cautious, like, you know, you never really can tell what a justice is thinking based on their questions, but it is sometimes insightful. So uh, tell us what happened there at the oral argument. Yeah, so the the two justices who I felt like, you know, really displayed their perspective on it the most were probably Jeff Boyd and Jimmy Blacklock. And, and both of them, if you can infer from their questions, seemed to consider the fiance's argument kind of extraordinary. And they challenged the fiance's attorney over and over again on, like, how can you argue that someone who has no relationship to the child has the same rights to that child as the actual parent has? And uh, in fact, the, you know, in their, their legal briefs to the court, the fiance's uh, attorney has argued that, you know, that they've referred to the fiance as the step parent of the child, which he isn't. He has no actual legal relationship to the child and no biological relationship. And so uh, Justice Blacklock challenged them on that and said, "Okay, you say step parent or stepfather. Is there act- is he actually a stepfather?" And the fiance's attorney said, "No, he feels like a step parent." <laughs> and that feeling that he, you know he feels like he has a significant relationship with the child, that he acts like a parent toward the child, in their mind, apparently justifies him taking custody from the actual parent. Well, and what's bizarre to me is the legislature. You know, obviously, has dealt with this in the case of grandparents, and so you had the decision that said, "Okay, if a grandparent wants to come in, they have to show that the parent is unfit." And that's, you know, okay, they can feel. Uh, there's lots of situations where people might be in the care or custody of a grandparent off and on, or for some reason, and the grandparent feel like, "Hey, they have a, a parent-child type relationship." I mean, that's common. You know, that, that sort of thing happens, but Still, the legislatures acknowledge those folks have to show that the parent is unfit. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the one of the most extraordinary items here is that the the law, like if a 
if a relative tries to take custody from a parent, the law there is actually pretty strong and says, hey, look, if, if you're going to take custody from a parent, you have to prove that the parent is unfit or that somehow harm is going to be done to this child if you don't grant you custody. Right. And like that's that's pretty well established. And the crazy thing about it here is that the relatives in this case were kicked out because they were unable to prove that the father was unfit. It was the person who has no relationship with the child, no biological relationship and barely, you know, barely any actual relationship. That was the person who was allowed in. So it's easier right now under the status of the law in Texas. It is easier for someone who has no relation to the child to get custody than a relative. Yeah, that's truly bizarre. Fascinating, uh, but bizarre. Tell us a little bit about the groups that have lined up on the different sides of this case. A um, lot of good organizations kind of involved to, to support the, the father's rights, uh, but then uh, some institutional actors coming in on the side of this uh, uh, live-in boyfriend. Yeah, so there, I think it's seven organizations now who have intervened to defend the father and then the state of Texas has also intervened to defend the father. And among those uh, organizations... Through, through, the, through the attorney general's office, so attorney general Ken Paxton. That's correct. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so the organizations that are defending the father at this point, like THSC, we've intervened in the case and filed a brief. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, I mentioned the state of Texas, they filed a brief. And then the Parental Rights Foundation, uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation, and there's a new group here in Texas called the Texas Association of Family Defense Attorneys who filed a really great brief just before oral arguments. And then Texas Values, A Voice for Choice Advocacy, those are all the groups that have come in to defend the father. And the only entity who has come in to attack the father and defend the fiance in this case, ironically, is the state bar of Texas. The family law section of the state bar filed a brief in the case basically defending the fiance and saying, hey, you know, parents, biological parents in these types of cases have no greater right to custody of their children than these unrelated people do. And it's kind of extraordinary because, you know, you're required as an attorney in Texas to be a member of the state bar. That's and right. I, I am even a plaintiff in a lawsuit about that very subject, but <laughs> that's another discussion. For right. Another day. right. And uh, so, so, in fact, that, you know, the state bar filed this brief and uh, the group I mentioned before, the Texas Association of Family Defense Attorneys, they filed their brief in response to the state bar because they were so outraged that this government agency, basically, the state bar of Texas, would file a brief uh, attacking the father when it takes paying dues mandatorily from all these attorneys in Texas. Yeah, if you're, an, if you're a lawyer, you're paying for uh, the... the uh pointy-headed uh, leadership there at the state bar to come in and take these kind of extreme positions uh, in litigation. Very, very interesting. All right, we're running out of time. Tell folks who um, are listening at home how they can become involved with Texas Homeschool Coalition. I mean, truly, you guys are not just, you know, an advocacy group for homeschool uh, parents. I mean, it's, it's about parental rights. I mean, you're the leading voice for that and uh, something that I think any parent even homeschool or not, uh, should be involved in. So tell folks how they can get involved and get connected with you. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we kind of realized a long time ago that it wasn't enough to just argue that parents have the right to give their child a, an academic education. It's really about the right to be able to raise your children more broadly than that. And so we get involved in a lot of fights like this that are about that more fundamental right. 
even if it doesn't specifically have to do with homeschooling. And so on this case, we've launched a website called lethherstay.com. And if people go there, they can sign the petition and uh, they can donate to, to help raise awareness on the case. And um, then there's a video on there for people to share that explains the case. And so at, at this point in, in the procedure, the big thing that we're working on is trying to spread information about the case as far as possible, get as much publicity as possible, because you know, we want the court to realize that the public is watching the decision they make here and the public cares about the decision being made here. And then we're also working to try and recruit additional organizations who might be able to come in and file briefs defending the father. That's great. Well, great work. And, and check that out. Lethherstay.com. Great project, Texas Homeschool Coalition. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Hey there, Texas Scorecard Radio listeners. Jim Graham from Texas Right to Life here. And I wanted to quickly hijack the show to remind you that every Tuesday and Thursday at 3 p.m. on the Empower Texans and Texas Right to Life Facebook pages, Empower Texans CEO Michael Quinn Sullivan and I will discuss all the latest news from around the state, country, and world. We don't always stay on topic, but when we do, we're delivering you the news and perspective you need to hold your elected officials accountable. Don't forget the Jim and Michael show every Tuesday and Thursday at 3 p.m. on the Empower Texans and Texas Right to Life Facebook pages. Well, with tax revenues falling, Texas government needs to tighten its belt. Robert Montoya in this week's commentary has a suggestion of one place to cut. Stop canding out cash to Hollywood. The Chinese coronavirus combined with local government stay-at-home orders are slowing the Texas economy and shrinking tax revenues. With so many Texans facing job losses and struggling to get by, we need the Texas legislature to prioritize core services of government and ease our tax burdens. Here's one suggested cut. Film subsidies. Hi, I'm Robert Montoya with this week's Texas Scorecard Radio Commentary. In late March, Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar painted a gloomy picture for the state's cash flow. He expected projected revenues to drop by several billion dollars and that Texas will need additional revenue or spending cuts in order to meet its obligations. He also thinks Texas will have to draw upon the Economic Stabilization Fund, commonly called the Rainy Day Fund, in order to make ends meet. At the time, he suspected the state unemployment rate may have already passed 9%. In fact, Texas unemployment claims jumped over 2,000% year over year by the end of March. Even if they couldn't have predicted the Chinese coronavirus, anyone with common sense knew the good times would not roll on forever, and our economy would enter a cool-down period at some point. For years, the grassroots have repeatedly asked the Texas legislature to cut spending. They refused, and even went so far as to increase spending by about 12% in 2019. Now, our elected leaders have been caught flat-footed. But all is not lost. They can still right the ship by cutting spending, and there is a lot that can be cut. One area they can cut is Texas's Moving Image Industry Incentive Program, which forces taxpayers to finance films and video games. I've talked before about how I'm a fan of the movie industry, which is also being hit strongly by the effects of the Chinese coronavirus. Former personal collaborators and friends of collaborators are out of work, Many productions have been halted, workers let go, and questions are rising about how the industry rebound. This is the one time where Hollywood has lost her usual immunity to recessions and depressions. 
But such struggles are also being felt by Texans statewide. And at a time where people who've never been to a food bank before are now showing up looking for help, they should not be forced to pay taxes to finance somebody else's movie. In 2017, the Texas legislature set aside $32 million for film incentives. Just two years later, that figure rose to $50 million, an increase of more than 56% of taxpayer dollars. This is money the taxpayers need back and Texas can use to protect core services. And let's be clear, this money isn't going to produce the next Citizen Kane. In recent years, taxpayer dollars have flowed to such masterpieces as Mongolian Deathworm, Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders Season 10, and H-E-B Corn Ship TV. Some will say that it's in times like these that Hollywood needs a bailout, that to cut film financing now is heartless. But the truly heartless move is to force Texans struggling to buy groceries during economic crisis to pay taxes towards movies they'll never watch. For film lovers, the real solution to making this industry great in Texas is to create an environment where creators can create, not to punish them with burdensome permits, regulations, licenses, and fees. With this week's Texas Scorecard Radio Commentary, I'm Robert Montoya. Have a blessed week. Well, that's all I have for this week's show. Uh, Remember, we are a self-governing people. That means you are responsible for your own health and safety, not the government. Keep that in mind as we proceed. Thanks for listening. Texas Scorecard Radio is brought to you each week as a public service from the Empower Texans Foundation and in partnership with the Lincoln Institute and this station. You can download podcasts from each program and learn more at empowertexans.com. 